This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. As we signed off last time, Alex was on his way to see Batman vs. Superman. How'd that turn out, Alex? Well, let's just say it didn't turn out well. That movie was about as much of a creative disaster as you could have. I mean, it failed to justify any of its character motivations, like the big fight between Batman and Superman. You know, it's like, hey, let's manipulate these characters into fighting, even though they actually had a decent start with how to put these two against one another. And the ending of that big titular fight is one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. And not because they wanted it to be, but because the way they just artificially inserted a, here's a shared connection we have. It it, it was just stupid. (laughs) So I've seen, I haven't seen the movie, but certainly have seen first lots of discussion and and many critics with a similar sentiment to what, uh, to your thoughts. Uh, but then quickly noted that it, it did quite well and stormed around the globe, and, and then a discussion of whether or not the movie was review-proof. And that got me thinking about a frequent criticism of, of media kind of broadly, which is that there's so much similarity, or that all these blockbuster movies are all the same. Well, let's look at Batman versus Superman as an example. It kind of has a lot of the elements that you would expect from a blockbuster, There's fighting, there's explosions, there's big, grand visual effects that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And when you put it kind of against films like Transformers or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it kind of has, it kind of shares the elements of a prototypical blockbuster. And this, that sameness, those characteristics, seeing them again and again, I think it's important to understand that that they're not coming from a lack of creativity. From a media business perspective, it is a strategy. There's this long-held axiom in the business. Um, I've traced it back to William Goldman, who was a screenwriter, and that is this sentiment that nobody knows. And, and, and that's one of the things that makes developing things and creating things in media industries particularly challenging and largely different from many other industries where you're able to much better predict likely consumer adoption or consumer interest. And so nobody knows has been this constraint under which media industries have operated. And one of the ways that they have attempted to battle back is to do things like they've done before. And I kind of generally use the broad term of formatting for this. And there's many different ways that you can format, but it's taking different aspects of of creative that have worked before and using them again under the belief that if they work before, they'll work again. Right. I mean... Executives don't know what will be successful, but they know what's worked in the past. So kind of the idea we're playing with here is we know XYZ worked. So let's take what we think people liked about XYZ and put it in ABC. And keep in mind, this isn't necessarily what people liked. This is what the executives took away from the reception and from feedback and from their own perspectives on the movie that they think people like. And I think another thing to keep in mind is even though there's a fair bit of evidence out there that that formatting can help studios be successful in predicting likely success, it is also the case that many times following a format, following features that have been used before, yields something that doesn't work at all. And we'll talk about both sides of that in this podcast. Right. And so there's many different kinds of formatting. And and so to think about some of these strategies broadly, uh, I think sequels and spinoffs are probably the most obvious. 
Right. This is probably the one that you're most used to seeing just in your multiplexes. Because this year, this summer, we're going to have movies like Captain America Civil War, sequel to Captain America and continuation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now You See Me 2, sequel to the actual kind of sleeper hit Now You See Me from 2013. And spinoffs, we have one of the most buzzed about movies of the summer is the new Ghostbusters with Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, kind of filling the roles that Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd filled in the original. There's also a trend that's been coming out recently, especially with Warner Brothers, in that they're taking their existing franchise hits that they have the right to and kind of expanding the universe uh, with movies like The Hobbit spinning off Lord of the Rings and this year's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them coming from uh, the Harry Potter world. And going back to the past 10 years, seven of the films which topped the box office, so seven of the number one films in those years were sequels. And importantly, the notion of sequels and spinoffs, this isn't a strategy that's limited to film. We see it in, in television in many ways as well. What starts with Law & Order becomes Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Law & Order Criminal Intent. Uh, the big discussion that I've seen lately is the way in which just this genre of, of the true crime story now is being mimicked and reproduced after the, the somewhat different but related successes of uh, American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson trial, and Making a Murder. Right. I mean, TV has been doing this for years. Film has been doing this for years. And they've kind of, and I don't want to say it's a proven model of success, because it's hard to prove something like that. But there is certainly a correlation between a first film success and a second film success. So another formatting strategy involves adapting intellectual property, the ideas, the characters, the story world, from one medium and taking it to another. And the advantage of that is often the familiarity with a product and potentially a built-in audience. Right, and kind of looking at some examples of this, we there's all the comic book movies. So your Marvel movies, your Batman, your Superman, everything like that, that fits into that world. X-Men. Uh, Harry Potter, the prototypical book adaptation, probably the biggest uh, book adaptation we've had in recent memory. I, I, I don't want to... Yeah, perhaps ever. Um, and franchises like Twilight and The Hunger Games that have come in and followed strong in Harry Potter's footsteps. But not every adaptation works. We saw this year uh, the Divergent series Allegiance is only at about 136 million worldwide. That's down substantially from where the first two films were in the franchise. And it's probably not going to turn a profit on its $110 million budget. And a strategy like formatting even goes beyond story worlds, themes, characters, but also something as basic as strategies like casting known actors or using known writers, directors, and producers, because those two are, are ways in which the industries can, can market these films. If you knew this director and you like that film, then maybe you'll like this one. And so, it, again, try, somewhat cuts down on that uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, they're playing off kind of your familiarity with the actors, their directors. So this is especially prevalent in the world of comedy, where you have a few big names taking up a lot of the box office juice. Someone like Kevin Hart, a lot of successful movies. Melissa McCarthy, who has opened so many movies and actually gotten them to $100 million purely on her own star power. Although there is room for kind of known talents from other mediums to break through, like Amy Schumer broke through with Trainwreck this summer, which was 
very successful for Universal. And Universal is also hoping Andy Samberg of SNL and Brooklyn Nine-Nine will do the same thing this summer with his off-kilter comedy, pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. And I think this is, again, one of those places where media industries are, are really unlike many other industries. And in some ways, media economists talk about this as the A-list, B-list issue. And so maybe we're casually used to talking about A-list stars. And what are A-list stars? Well, they are the ones that are, are earning $10, $20 million for a movie. And, and the reason that they're earning that money isn't because they are just that much better of an actor or actress than some other actor or actress, but because they have that kind of power, like you were saying with Melissa Mar McCarthy, that just her presence in a film will draw a significant audience. And so, so again, or at least the expectation that her presence will draw a significant audience. So just to give a sort of odd example or odd comparison, if you think about furniture making, ah, yes, I know. <laughs> but if I were a furniture maker and, and I were going to make a chair, in most industries, the inputs and what they cost will directly predict the cost and, and value of an item. In other words, if I use pine to make a chair, which is a soft wood and a cheaper wood and, and generally viewed as not as durable as oak, um, then I would expect to sell it for less and people would expect to buy it for less. This isn't exactly how it works in the media industries, though, and, and there, there isn't that clear relationship. Sometimes putting a $20 million actress in a movie will indeed lead you to bring in huge amounts of returns. Other times, you might be just as well off with a new a starting actress who can take the role just as well, and, and, and you wouldn't have to pay her that $20 million. Right. I mean, someone like George Clooney doesn't necessarily open a movie the way he used to. Hail Caesar has done well, but probably not the amount of, with, with the amount of money that you would expect with someone like George Clooney in a leading role and a prominent role in that movie. And the other thing is these values are constantly changing, right? And so, and, and sometimes the audience understands that uh, someone who typically works in big budget movies is, is doing a small independent film and that this is going to be something unlike what they're familiar with. And, and sometimes the audience doesn't show up as a result. So these are all really complicated dynamics that from, if you're the entity that's funding the creation of these productions, they're, they're really different, difficult to calculate in a way, again, that, that's different than if you're a furniture maker and you're calculating the cost of your oak versus your pine. There's exact metrics that you can follow and kind of, and when you're making a chair, you know, there's a set way you make that chair. There, there aren't nearly as many variables as there are with media industries. And finally, and I guess another way that we can even talk about formatting is something as basic as familiar genres. They're easier to promote and people tend to respond better in media testing to concepts that are like things they've seen before. So if you're trying to promote something and people are familiar with romantic comedies, a concept that fits very neatly in the romantic comedy box is much easier to promote and drive audiences to the theater for than, let's say, a concept that's, you know, a mixture of some genres. And so this, too, leads to that sense of sameness and similarity in that studios and, and other entities that are, are developing content, they know that those things that audiences are familiar with are likely to do better. Right. You see this with comic book movies. Comic book movies have shown that audiences will show up for that. So grant studios are going to make comic book movies. And action tends to be another really common genre. You see movies like Kingsman, The Secret Service, break out and make a lot of money. You've seen Transformers. And there are so many other examples within just kind of the action genre. Or a recent trend with Disney, they've been taking old library content 
um, kind of animated movies that they've made and re- and are retelling them for the big screen. This started out with Alice in Wonderland back in 2010, and now you've seen movies like Cinderella turn a, turn a decent profit for Disney. And they've also got The Jungle Book coming out this year, which is tracking very well. And they've got Beauty and the Beast coming out next year with action, with a really, really strong cast. And so again, somewhat separate from the conversation we've had so far with the about franchises and just sort of the, the story world expansion, I think it's also important to think about the way that that franchises, especially in the film industry, are connected, are they're properties that are often adaptations or intellectual property that are known, but they also have the possibility for a lot of extensions through toys and other licensing. Especially within Disney. Disney merchandising is huge to their bottom line. Yeah, I was going to say, and let's not forget Star Wars, but I guess now that is part of the Disney <laughs> universe. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so basically, this licensing and these toys, they introduce another revenue stream that can be quite substantial. And then at the same time, they do terrific marketing work for the for the property, building up excitement if, if toys are released ahead of time, that also can drive film going. I mean, one of the things I never count out is I never can count out the Disney Disney marketing machine when it comes to make, releasing a movie. They just have so much power over so many different kinds of audiences in so many ways that they can get butts in the seats for almost anything they release. They do have duds, and they do have films that don't do as well, but something like Cinderella, they can get people into those. They can get the family audience into it into the room. So Alex, you were you were telling me before about going to see Deadpool and the way that it doesn't exactly fit with this conversation. Right. So Deadpool, it's a superhero movie, but it's not the type of superhero movie that you're used to seeing. There's cursing, there's graphic, horribly graphic violence, there's sex jokes, there's pretty much any word that you can possibly think of is in that movie in some form. And they make that clear from the opening credits. Instead of crediting the actors, they credit people like a hot chick, a British villain, the comic relief, a CGI character, a moody teenager, written by the real heroes, directed by an overpaid tool. They really kind of get you in the mood for that right away. And it made money. It's made about over 700 million worldwide. It's currently the second highest grossing film of the year, though that definitely is going to change by the time summer rolls around. And that that illustrates, again, though, working within similarity and difference and, and knowing when people have become sort of tired of that sort of staid familiarity, sort of that expectation that you know that a superhero movie is going to be just like this and sort of being able to have your pulse on the audience to know that it's exactly the right moment to mix things up a little bit. And so I think if you look over the history of, of just about any medium, we can see these sort of cyclical patterns of, of themes, of content that you have an abundance of. Usually, as soon as something works really well, there are several other things just like it that come out attempting to sort of make use of that. Like in TV, we're going to see, a bu- we're already seeing a couple true crime pilots get greenlit off of the success of O.J. Simpson, like NBC and Dick Wolf have a pilot that was just greenlit. Right, so so here we go, and and we have in the same way that in a, for a long time there, let's say we've had the whole serialized anti-hero drama on cable, and you know we had as many different variations as we could, and then the audience started getting bored with it, and so it was. And Low Winter pivot. Sun came out and <laughs> kind of ruined the genre for everybody, but it's okay. <laughs> 
And so, again, it's as a strategy, though, it's this attempt to introduce a little bit of difference, but still being guided by that that general sameness. And I think in the marketing campaign for Deadpool, they push the fact that it was a superhero movie, but not the type of superhero movie you're used to seeing. Like, Deadpool was as much of a product of its marketing campaign as it was of the movie itself. But something we haven't really addressed yet is what happens when original movies break through. Because there have been some some really high-grossing movies, they're, ve- they're much rarer than they used to be. And they're, it's very rare that you see an original movie in the top ten gross, highest-grossing movies. But when you look at something like Zootopia, currently the highest-grossing movie of the year at about $800 million worldwide. Inside Out, coming out last year. Frozen was the top movie of 2013. Christopher Nolan has had it hits in Interstellar, Inception, and you have Gravity, you have Avatar, the highest grossing movie of all time. Though a lot of these movies had the backing of a known brand like Disney, or known directors in the case of Chris Nolan, Alvanta Cuaron in Gravity, and James Cameron in Avatar. Right. It really is rare for something that is, is truly unknown to become a, a blockbuster hit. More more often what happens is something surprisingly breaks through and then it becomes the calling card for the talent behind it or the concept that then leads the industry to back that, that person with the full muscle. And I think J.K. Rowling is perhaps one of the best examples of that, sort of starting out as an unknown author. And, you know, I think the the interesting trajectory of the ownership of the different Harry Potter properties comes exactly from the fact that it wasn't created with the idea that from the start that this was about to be a blockbuster. And so we have all of these different histories. Yeah, we do. And now J.K. Rowling is going to be a credit screenwriter in her own right with Fantastic Beasts. But... Do you think formatting is more or less important to the media industries given the many changes that are happening? Well, I think it's clear that formatting remains valuable, but it there are also new tools, and, and I think that's the bit that's most intriguing to me. A big question is whether sort of this new world of big data collection and the ability to know more about media consumption might prove just as valuable. Right, you're looking at sites like Netflix using that to drive their entire system and their entire audience. Like pretty, In a theory. Lot of, in theory. <laughs> right. In theory, the shows they make are based on shows they know have done well. Right, and, and just sort of the idea that, that they now have access to data that didn't exist previously in terms of how long does it take an audience member to get through a show and, and the, to the idea that that sort of says something about their amount of passion for it. Um, how, what other series or what other content does a person consume? And so the ability to really begin to develop some more nuanced profiles of of major viewer types and, or in the case of Netflix, um, subscriber types, having a sense of of what uh, what the threshold is for maintaining subscription and things like that. But I think that the big concern, though, on the other hand of, you know, ooh, big data presents the opportunity to know much more is that there's real concern about whether or not these businesses will be able to stay creative. Uh, I was listening to a a podcast that was done by the radio, television, and film department at the University of Texas. They've got this great series that has a number of, of, of individuals from throughout the television and film industries doing really long interviews. Um, And David Zucker, who's president of TV for Scott Free, was talking about the experience of more and more having established writers coming in and sort of just asking, well, what what should we do instead of coming in with ideas? And, And I think that probably comes from 
I mean, that might be evidence of the start of sort of a chilling environment where creatives don't trust their own ideas or don't feel that um, executives are going to be as receptive to them because of this idea that executives now have, have more knowledge and more specific things that, that they want developed. And I think this transitions well to an article that, that The Hollywood Reporter put out recently that talked about Warner Brothers and how they've looked at how their films have done recently. They've had big bombs like Pan, and then they've had successes like Batman vs. Superman. And they're consi- they Warner Brothers generally would put out a lot of different kinds of movies. Like if you look at kind of a summer release slate, they'd have one or two big blockbusters, a few more comedies, a few kind of smaller movies, and then a couple big budget risks. Something like Gravity comes to mind. And they're considering kind of pulling back on those big budget risks because with something like Pan, it didn't pay off for them and they actually lost, I I know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on it. So they're considering going to known formats and known franchises, specifically DC, Lego, and Harry Potter. Yeah, so in, in the classroom, we'd call this intentional overproduction. And this has been another way that the industry has responded to that sort of nobody knows. Well, if nobody knows, we're going to make a bunch of stuff and, and you know, hope, play the odds and hope some of it sticks. So I think it's important to think about other strategies that exist other than formatting. Um, and instead of going with overproduction and, and having so many pieces of content out there, spending more focus on a few a smaller slate and, and maybe that that could be just as, as valuable a strategy, again, especially in this environment, where perhaps it is possible to know more than it, it has been in the past. I don't know that th- that is as true for film at this point as it seems to be increasingly for television and developing television for outlets such as Netflix. And at the end of the day, I think it's important to recognize that it's really difficult to separate strategy from execution. And a lot of times we look at things as evidence of a strategy gone wrong, and it's really just a matter of poor execution. And so I think teasing that out is is actually the big issue. And so the question here, are people actually deterred by blockbuster and comic book adaptations? Will people be deterred by kind of Batman versus Superman, which 16, there was a 69% drop from opening weekend to the second weekend. So now there's kind of this panic of like, what should Warner Brothers do? Should they change their strategy? Should they push back Justice League? Right. Or is it just that the execution of this particular movie wasn't that good? And, and that doesn't have to predict anything for other comic book movies. I mean, maybe it's a, a moment to, to think about the execution and to think about how it could be different if, if this particular running with these conventional formats and sort of producing something that the audience is kind of already expecting isn't working as well as, let's say, something like Deadpool. But at the end of the day, strategy and execution are always two different things. That's true. So now we're going to move on to our final segment of each and every show. What are we watching this week? Amanda, what are you watching? Well, I'm going to give a good shout out to American Idol. I have not watched it, I think, maybe since the second season when uh, my taste in America's diverged so greatly that it was a point of heartache. You did not like that Ruben Stuttered one that year? Oh, or was, I was don't remember. It was earlier on. Yeah. There were, I think there was other talent that was eliminated early. But this, it's been really fun for me this season because I have also been watching it with my kids for the first time. Aww. And, and their perspective on all of this is fascinating. And, and for a long time, as a television critic, I, I, I've heard about this complaint about how there's not much television that your whole family can watch together. And I, I never really got that until now. 
And, and what I really have appreciated about Idol is that it, it's created all of these moments for us to talk about, um, often related to um, sportsmanship and being a good loser, uh, because I have some competitive children. Uh, <laughs> but Idol, it, it's just, it's, I've really appreciated how it's been kind of a, a snark-free zone and, and the talent this semester. And I, this I, semester? I'm sorry, yes. The talent this season, rather. It's getting to be the end of the semester, if you can't tell. Uh, has, has been really incredible. And, and last night, we, we decided it was kind of a draw. We, we were going to vote, but then we decided that we liked them both so well we couldn't decide who. Oh, I mean, I, I haven't been watching this season of Idol, but I probably will tune in for the finale because it's been, for a while there, it was such an important part of my TV viewing from about the fourth through the eighth season. So I, I won't say what grade I was in, just uh, a... <laughs> But it used to be what I would watch, you know? I used to sit there and actually, like, grade the... Kind of, like, go through and be like, who am I actually going to vote for? And, like, actually carefully consider my decisions. And, you know, it used to be one of the hot topics around... I I guess when I started watching, it was still around the playground um, instead of the water cooler. But it it was a very important show for me for a few years. It's been about, you know eight years since I've watched it regularly. Yeah, coming back after so many years for me as well, it was fascinating to watch the way in which the contestants had grown up with Idol. And that was clearly very much part of of the competition in a way that it clearly couldn't have been in those those first seasons. So that's been rich to watch as well. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? Well, this week, uh, I I think I have a trend recently of picking some kind of hardcore dramas, and I'm going to continue that this week with The Americans, which has just been on a roll, starting with its fourth season. During the first three seasons, they've built a really good groundwork. They've built a really good base, and now they're starting to play with it. Now they're starting to take out kind of pieces that they've been hiding for a while, and pieces that they've kind of been setting and actually starting to use them, and... My goodness, it's just so powerful at its best. I can tell from my Twitter feed, something happened, and I'm trying to avoid learning what that is. Same, same with me. I haven't actually watched <laughs> the episode yet. I will have watched it by the time we post this, though. So, yeah. No, I'm, I've heard a lot of great things about the Americans this season, and I'm getting ready to go back and catch up as well. What, how far did you get? I'm at the end of the last season. Okay. So, yeah, you, you should catch up. Definitely. Well, thanks again for listening. It's been Media Business Matters. You can find episodes of Media Business Matters on iTunes by searching Media Business Matters, or you can find the link at amandalots.com, where you can also find a link to our RSS feed if you want to subscribe to us directly that way, as well as you can stream back episodes of the show there. You can follow us on Twitter. Amanda, where can they follow you? Dr. TV Lots. And you can follow me at Alex Intner. Alex, I-N-T. N-E-R. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon.